may be seated. If we, if we continue in worship, we're going to worship by going to our, our God in prayer this morning. As we go um, to God in prayer, just one special prayer focus to make you aware of. We want to remember Rosie Abukowitz and the whole Abukowitz family, especially this morning as Mark passed away um, yesterday. Um, so we just want to remember them and prayer that, uh, support them through our prayers. Um, so with that... Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the chance to come before you as your people gathered together in this place now that you've worked in each life represented here to draw us here today now for your purposes but not work in each one of our lives to bring it to the place and so we praise and we thank you for the way you worked the way you've drawn us here the work you've done in each one of our lives do pray this morning for Rosie and for the whole Abukowitz family as they mourn Mark's passing. We praise you for the work you did in Mark's life to draw him to yourself so they can be, we can have assured hope that he is with you now. Glorified body. Pray that you would be with the book of his family if they mourn his passing if they miss him that you would bring them comfort bring them peace in the midst of this hardest season we pray for others in our church family and those around us who are going through hard times whether in the medical things or emotional things or we pray for anyone in the midst of pain and the hard season that you would be with them, that you bring comfort and peace and you to pour out your grace, especially on those who are walking through hard times right now. We do praise you as we, as we just sang, that we can we can raise the hallelujah. We can praise you in the midst of the storm because of all that you've promised us in your word that this life is not all there is. This world is not our ultimate home. And we look forward to the day when you will return and make all things right and end all pain and suffering. But until that day comes, we pray you would help us to live lives that are honoring to you, that you would work in each one of us to draw us and conform us more and more into the image of Jesus, that we could live lives that bring honor and glory to your name and that draw more and more people to yourself. 
earth. We live out our lives in the world that people would come to a knowledge of Jesus because of our interactions with them. And that above all, you would be glorified in our lives. That we continue now to sing and to worship you. Pray that you would fix our minds and fix our heart on you, bringing you glory. Would we put away other distractions? Focus on the word that we sing and how they glorify you. The desire of our heart would be to bring you praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we continue worshiping this morning, um, you know, as we're looking at coming up into Easter season, so many of the worship songs that we sing are really, that's the central theme, right? It is the resurrection of Christ. And it's really funny when you kind of compare and contrast Christmas and Easter. You, Christmas, we're so absorbed in Christmas. It is Christmas full on for like a month. And then Easter is like, as a culture, it's a weekend, really. You know what I mean? Like, but as Christians, like this is this is the pinnacle, really, of what our faith is. Is Easter? All these songs, they all have that theme running through them of the the resurrection and our salvation, and the hope of Jesus Christ. So it's so easy to pick songs out for Easter season because they're all about that. That is what our faith is. So this morning, why don't we stand? We're going to sing some more. Um, some of these songs are very literal about the resurrection, but the other ones that you might, they might not say, you know, the cross or anything like that in it, but just think upon that because this is, we're coming up on that season and this is really what we should be dwelling on at this time.
praise you that you are indeed our living hope, that you are both alive, that the grave could not hold you, that you rose again. And because of that, we have hope that, as we sang earlier, that your plans for us don't end at our grave, but there is hope beyond this life. All because of you, Jesus, and what you've done for us on the cross and rising again. As we walk through this Easter season, when we remember and be astounded once again at all that you've done for us, we'd be amazed at what a great Savior you are. you and we delight in you because of all that you do have done for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. May I be seated? So back I used to be a fifth grade teacher and back when I was a teacher, like I would read a fair number of books right, targeted at kids and fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, that age range. And one of the things that always kind of irritated me about those books was that it seems like in those books so often the villain or the bad guy or the antagonist, which is kind of bad for the sake of being bad. The bad guys were bad because the book needed them to be bad to move the plot forward. But we never really got any look, any picture into why they were bad in the first place. Which would frustrate him because that's just not how life works. Even like people in this life that we think of as quote-unquote bad guys, they aren't just evil for the sake of being evil, typically. Usually there's circumstances in their life that have shaped them into the kind of person they are. That's not to excuse their behavior, but there are reasons behind the behavior. There's usually reasons behind the choices that people make. So in his, in his novel, The End of the Road, the novelist John Barth writes this. He writes, Everyone is necessarily the hero of his own life story. Hamlet could have been told from Polonius's point of view and called the tragedy of Polonius, Lord Chamberlain of Denmark. He didn't think he was a minor character in anything, I dare say. Now, truth be told, like I've never read Hamlet. Like I'm not I was like supposed to read it in high school probably, but I who reads in high school? And, and so I never actually read it. So I didn't I didn't get this reference when I first heard about it. But I and I I went and Googled, I looked into a trusty Wikipedia right, and looked up kind of the plot of Hamlet and who Polonius is. And it says this, Polonius is the chief counselor of the play's ultimate villain, Claudius, and the father of Laet, somebody, and Ophelia. Generally regarded as wrong in every judgment he makes over the course of the play, Polonius is described as a sincere father, but also a busybody who is accordingly officious, gregarious, and impertinent. In Act 2, Hamlet refers to Polonius as a tedious old fool. 
Right? The point being, like Shakespeare's depiction of Polonius in the play is not a positive one. Right? He's bumbling, he's wrong in every judgment, he's just not a good character in the story. Right? But the point of Barth's quote here, right, is if if that story were told from Polonius' perspective, like he'd be the hero. We'd have, we'd have far more insight into why he made the choices he made. We'd have far more sympathy for his actions. And stories that are well-written, right? Stories where we can understand why the perceived bad guy is the way he is are far more interesting. Perhaps one of the best examples of this in literature is the book Les Mis right, by Victor Hugo. In that book, right, the antagonist, the guy we're supposed to see as the bad guy, is the police inspector Javert. And he's constantly pursuing the book's hero, right, the reformed thief, Jean Valjean. And so Jean Valjean's like, portrayed as this picture of redemption because he used to be a criminal, now he's reformed. But the reason Javert is pursuing Valjean is that even though Valjean is reformed, like he technically broke parole and according to the law should be arrested. And so Javert is doing a job as he sees it. He's pursuing justice as he sees it. But the way Hugo tells the story, he causes us to sympathize with Valjean and see Javert as cold and as heartless. But in Javert's mind, he's doing the right thing. He is doing what he's been taught is right and just. He's bringing a parole breaker to justice. But even though good writers like Hugo like, help us understand the motivations of the bad guy, the antagonist, like, our brains love to think in black and white. Right? We just think of like, either this person is all good or this person is all bad. It's much easier for our brain to think like, Valjean good, Javert bad than it is to imagine both of them in all their complexities. But in life, that's rarely the case. Like, no one is pure evil. And no one but Jesus is holy, perfectly good. When we come to the Bible, we tend to do this black and white thing. We imagine people as either bad guys or good guys. We imagine the bad guy that's evil for evil's sake. Maybe nowhere is that more true than in the case of Pontius Pilate. Right? If you actually grew up in church, right, like you, you hear the name Pilate, and like at least for me, like just bad guy pops into your brain. Like right? the Apostles' Creed, like kind of drives that home. Right? Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Like how can he be anything but a bad guy? But that read the story of Jesus before. Pilate this week, I almost found myself sympathizing with Pilate a little bit. And I know, like, that's not what pastors are supposed to say. And in the end, like, obviously, yes, he makes a very bad, wrong choice. But what we see as we read the story of Jesus' trial before Pilate is that Pilate is not just evil for the sake of being evil. He has reasons behind the choices he makes. He's a man trapped, as it were, between a rock and a hard place. And he seems genuinely torn about what to do. 
So to see what I mean, we're going we're gonna to read that story this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 18 and 19. We're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 18. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen. This is the second in a, in a series that we're doing leading up to Easter that I'm calling Road to the Resurrection. We're looking at each day leading up to Easter. So last week, if you remember, which you probably don't, right? We looked at, we looked at the third day before Easter. And we looked at the last supper that Jesus ate with the apostles. And today we're going to look at the Friday before Easter. Like so many things happen on the Friday before the resurrection. It's hard to pick one thing to focus on. In preparing for these sermons, I've been using this book called The Last Days of Jesus. It walks through the entire last eight days of Jesus' life, from Sunday to Sunday. And I looked at the events of each of those days, the eight days. And in total, the book is 170 pages. So not that long. But of those 170 pages, 70 of them are devoted to the Friday before the resurrection. Right? That's like 40% of the book focusing on one out of eight days. So a lot happens on the Friday before the resurrection. And of course, like the most significant of those is the crucifixion of Jesus. And we'll touch on the crucifixion in this sermon. But it'll be kind of the focus of our, our Good Friday service. And so... We won't spend a ton of time on the crucifixion itself today. We'll focus on that during the Good Friday service. And instead, today I want to focus on Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, which takes place in the morning of that Friday. And the Gospel of John covers the trial in more detail than any other Gospel. It's a fairly long passage. But I think it's worth our time to go through this, read the whole thing together, before we look at what it has to teach us this morning. So we're going to read this whole passage together. And as, you, as I read, I just encourage you to listen for two things. Listen for Jesus talking about king and kingdoms, and Pilate talking about king and kingdoms, just all the references to kings and kingdoms. Listen to that, and then listen for all the times that Jesus tries, or that Pilate tries to avoid condemning Jesus to death. I think that will help us get a picture of a little more holistic picture of Pilate as he tried to avoid condemning Jesus. And as we read, I'm going to stop in a few places just to make a couple of comments that didn't quite fit into the sermon itself, but I think are worth noting. So starting in John chapter 18, verse 28, we read this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So right off the bat, it's worth noting that Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea, this region, didn't normally live in Jerusalem. So he's not normally in Jerusalem, but he's here during this time, because it's the Passover. Pilate would typically live in Caesarea, but he comes to Jerusalem during the Passover. It's Passover, the celebration of God 
delivering his people from an oppressive foreign regime. God delivering his people from the oppressive Egyptians. You can imagine how in Jesus' time, now here are the Jews living under an oppressive foreign regime, under the Romans in this case. This celebration of Passover and God freeing people from an oppressive regime would cause a mood that is rife for rebellion. And so Pilate comes as governor in order to help quash any, any whisper of rebellion. That's his, his job. His task given him by Rome. His top priority is to keep order in the region. He fears nothing more than, than Caesar back in Rome hearing about rebellion in his region. He comes in order to help keep things under control. And the Jewish leaders in this passage are going to play on that fear. And the Pilate is in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders have found Jesus guilty in their own courts. But there's, there's one problem in mind of the Jewish leaders. We see that in verse 31. Right? Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone they objected. And so the, the problem for the Jewish leaders that they don't have the legal authority to crucify anyone. And by and large, the Romans let the Jewish people deal with their own legal affairs, their own internal legal battles on their own. But the, the Romans reserved the right. Only they could condemn someone to death. And this is clever by the Jewish leaders. They want to be seen here as going out of their way to be subservient to the Romans. Get on Pilate's good side. It's also worth noting that if if the Jews were to go around the law and execute someone on their own, they would do it almost certainly by by stoning, not by crucifixion. They see them do that to Stephen in the book of Acts. Which is why John asked the comment in verse 32. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. In John 12, Jesus said, and, when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. To which John says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus knew he was going to die by being lifted up. Right? That is by, by crucifixion, lifted up on a cross. So everything that Jewish leaders are doing here in this passage, bringing Jesus before Pilate, it all fits into what Jesus knew was going to happen to him. And picking up in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. 
And just like notice the irony here. Like, this is a trial, right? Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And like the very purpose of a trial should be to reveal truth. Find out what is really going on, what is true. And yet here's the man who functions as both judge and jury, questioning the very existence of truth. And then it continues, with this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe that symbolized king royal colors and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And that right there, like that just that's an astounding statement by the chief priests. Right? Like, even if they don't think Jesus is the king, which clearly they don't. Right? Even if they don't think it's Jesus, like the chief priest, surely they know their Bible, their Old Testament well enough to know that like, God alone claims to be the true king. And when the people of Israel first demand a king, God says to Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. 
It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And to a large extent, all the problems Israel faces that ultimately lead up to the Romans coming in and being in charge and ruling over them, all that stems back to that decision, to them rejecting God as their king and demanding a human king instead. And now here are the chief priests, the people who should know better than anyone. They're reaffirming that decision. We have no king but Caesar. And they make that claim because they so desperately want to be rid of Jesus. Until finally we're told in verse 16, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And as I read that passage, it seems clear to me that the really bad guys in the whole situation are are the Jewish leaders. They're leading the charge demanding that Jesus be crucified. By comparison, Pilate doesn't seem so bad. He even has some passively positive things to say about Jesus. Several times he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Well, the Jewish leaders demand that Jesus be condemned over and over and over again. So it's clear, right, that the the Jewish leaders are are wrong in their attitude toward Jesus. But also, if we look at at this story through through Pilate's perspective, what we see is that honoring Jesus as king requires more than just positive words. Pilate has positive things to say about Jesus. But if Jesus is truly king, which is what he's claiming in this passage, the mere positive words are not enough. And like Pilate does have plenty of relatively positive things to say about Jesus. Three times he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate freely admits that he sees nothing in Jesus that is worthy of being condemned for a crime. It's certainly not one that's worthy of crucifixion. And verse 12 even tells us, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He sees no basis to charge Jesus. He tries to free him. And those seem like positive, good things. But we know how the story ends. We know that ultimately Pilate does hand Jesus over to be crucified. So the question becomes, how do we go from Pilate saying three times, I find no basis for a charge against him, to suddenly Pilate handing Jesus over to be crucified? And all that has to do with, with Pilate's conflicting motivations. As I said, like Pilate is the governor of the Roman province of Judea. He was appointed probably about seven years before these events. Appointed by, by the Caesar Emperor Tiberius. And his main job as governor was to keep the province running smoothly, right, to make sure no rebellions developed. So the Jewish leaders are really clever here. The Jewish leaders, they want Jesus killed. Because he, he made what they perceived to be blasphemous claims to be God. But they know that Pilate won't care about that whatsoever. So if they want the Romans to execute Jesus, they need to come up with a charge that Pilate will care about. 
And Pilate cared about nothing more than, than preventing insurrection and threat to Caesar's power. And so they charged Jesus before Pilate was claiming to be a king. It all kind of reminds me of like, the story of Al Capone, right? like, the notorious gangster. Like, he does like, all these terrible things, like many, many crimes, including ordering the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But like authority could never produce enough evidence to convict him of murder or any more severe crime. But then one day they noticed, like, here's Capone who's living a very extravagant lifestyle, and he's never once filed an income tax return. And so Capone is eventually tried and convicted and sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion. One of the most notorious gangsters and criminals of all time like, goes to jail ultimately not for any of those other horrible things he does, but tax evasion. Because that's the one that could get to stick in court. That's the one that they pursued because that's the one that would get him convicted. Because the same thing's going on here with the Jewish authorities and Jesus. But the Jewish authorities are far more concerned with Jesus' religious claims. But they know that before Pilate, that charge won't matter. They know that before Pilate, the best chance that had but the charge that has the best chance of sticking is insurrection. So that's the charge that they pursue. Verse 12, they, they really drive this point home. When they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so that's the ultimate threat to Pilate's position. To be considered not a friend of Caesar is bad news for Pilate. So the, the Jewish there imply that to release Jesus would go against the will of Caesar. And their plan works. Right? It puts Pilate in an incredibly, extraordinarily tough position. If Pilate releases Jesus and rebellion breaks out, a number of bad things might happen. People could die in the rebellion. And like these rebellions were not uncommon during this time period where people would rise up and people would die. So that could happen. And also if Pilate releases Jesus, like Caesar could hear about it and he could remove Pilate from his position or do something even worse to Pilate. But Pilate is, is stuck in a tough position. He can either condemn one man to death, even though he believes them to be innocent. Or he can risk rebellion in the region. He can risk his own power and his own status by letting Jesus go free. And look, it's really easy to sit here from our position and say, of course, Pilate, you should let Jesus go. It's the right thing to do. But I just invite you, like, before we get too judgmental, too Condemning of Pilate. Like, just put yourself in his position for one second. Like, honestly ask yourself, with all that weight, with all that pressure on him personally and professionally, would you have made the same choice? Like, think of times that maybe you've been forced to choose between doing the right thing and the thing that benefits you most personally. Like, like I want to believe that if I was in Pilate's shoes, 
Well, I would have made the right choice. But like, I know my own like, sinful, selfish heart enough to not be so sure. Right? Like if, if nothing else, Pilate's situation reminds us that making the right choice will sometimes have unpleasant personal consequences. Sometimes doing the right thing leads to bad things personally for a while. If Pilate had made the right choice, it may have ended badly for him. But ultimately, those consequences we face for making the right choice don't change what the right action is. And of course, Pilate ultimately makes the wrong choice. If positive words are, were undone by his wicked deeds, eventually he gives in to these Jewish leaders over and over again yelling, crucify him. It's just it's striking how powerful this sort of mob mentality is. I remember like, we were living in Louisville a few years ago, and we went to some like, minor league soccer game in Louisville between a team in Louisville and another team. and like I don't even like care about soccer that much. I certainly don't care about minor league soccer. Like, I'm not from Louisville, so I had like, no real investment in cheering for the Louisville team. And yet this was like a close game coming on the last few minutes, and like in like the 88th minute, like two minutes left in the game, like a perceived like, bad call went against Louisville, giving the other team a penalty kick on which they won the game. And like the crowd who was there who really cared about that game got like super mad and like yelling and like like everyone was super upset. And I, who like shouldn't care, like don't care about Louisville that much, don't care about soccer that much, like I found myself enraged. Like because everyone around me was enraged. And it's it's amazing how much that mob mentality can infect you. We see that going on here. The mob mentality that the, the Jewish leaders are stirring up, whipping up in the crowd, they, they ultimately affect Pilate and lead him to make the wrong choice and commit wicked deeds. Even before Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, in an attempt to appease the Jewish leaders, he has Jesus flogged, and then he watches as a soldier place a crown of thorns on his head, that they mock Jesus' claim to be king, and that they slap Jesus in the face. That Jesus, the pilot, already oversees that. It's already wicked. But then, of course, he commits the ultimate wicked deed when he hands the Son of God over to be crucified. And ultimately, like that's what matters. What matters ultimately in our response to Jesus is not what we say. It's what we do when honoring Jesus comes into conflict with our own self-interest. It's great to say the right things about Jesus in conversation. It's great to come to church. It's great to have nice thoughts about Jesus. Those are great and you should definitely do those things. But the real test, the real question is, do you acknowledge Jesus as king when it will cost you something? It's easy to honor him when there's no cost to you personally. But will you honor Jesus as king 
when it will cost you something? Will you still choose to honor Jesus when it might cost you money or your comfort or friendships or maybe even your job or maybe even your life? Like, will you still choose to honor Jesus? Pilate tried to honor Jesus when it wasn't going to cost him anything. But when push came to shove, it was clear that it was going to cost him something to do right by Jesus. He made the wrong choice. And the great lesson we learn from Pilate is that to follow Jesus means placing Jesus over everything. To follow Jesus means putting Jesus before your personal interests. Following Jesus may have, may have cost Pilate his job and money and position, maybe even his life. And he chose those personal interests over obedience to Jesus. And following Jesus means like putting Jesus before national interests. Like Pilate chose the security of Rome and the safety of Rome over Jesus. We, for us now, like, I love living here in the United States. Thankful to live in the country. But national interest, like, my pride in country should never stand in the way of honoring Jesus. If Jesus really is king, if he claims to be, then honoring should Honoring Him should take precedence over any of those other things. And the clearest sign that Jesus really is King is how He responds to Pilate. What we see is He responds with an assured silence. Verses 8 through 11 of chapter 19 are maybe the most illuminating of this, illuminating of this entire passage. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 19, we read this. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answers, you have no power. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So normally, in this case, like a, the accused party would, would plead their innocence, would beg, would argue for their innocence and the right to be released. But Jesus does none of those things. He does not plead his innocence. He does not protest against the charges. Like he does not try to reason with Pilate. Why? Because to do so would be to acknowledge Pilate's power over him. We're reminded in this interaction here of, of Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, Isaiah writes, He, that is, the coming Messiah, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and if the sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
Jesus is living that prophecy out here in order to show his true power. Tevin Tevin Wack, writing about Jesus in silence here, says this. Jesus could have recognized Pilate's power. He could have spoken with him privately or sought to reason with him until he saw the merits of his case and the unjust accusations of the crowd. But such a response would ultimately have been an admission that Pilate was really in charge and that Jesus' future lay in the hands of an earthly king. And Jesus, we've said before, like knows where all this is heading. Like Later on this same Friday, Jesus will go to the cross. He'll be nailed to the cross. He will die on the cross. Right? But that happens not because his future lies in the hands of an earthly king. Jesus goes to the cross not because of any power that Pilate has. Jesus goes to the cross because he is on a rescue mission. A rescue mission that has been planned by the ultimate king from eternity past. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 is I think one of the more important verses for fully grasping what happens at Easter. Paul, speaking to his fellow Israelites, says this. He says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. The cross was God's plan. Pilate had no power over Jesus at the trial. The cross, like all that happens here is God's plan to save people from the power and penalty of their sins. But like if we think about Pilate, right, and like the terrible choices he makes. What we need to take from Pilate is not an attitude of condemning and judgment, but an attitude of like, I'm no better. Like, I deserve judgment. Like, my sins deserve the same penalty that Pilate's sins deserve. And if God would have been fully right and just to leave us in the sin to pay that penalty on our own, But by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, He planned for Jesus to come, to stand before Pilate, to be condemned, to go to a cross. So that on the cross, He could bear all the sins that we ever committed if we place our trust in Him. That on the cross, for everyone who believes in Him, Jesus bears the penalty for all our sins. And that's our great hope. That God looks at us as if we lived the perfect life Jesus lived and God looks at Jesus on the cross as if He committed all the sins we ever committed. We're not better than Pilate. We need Jesus just like Pilate needed Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in 
Easter, right? Like Good Friday, such a big deal because we needed Jesus to go to the cross for us. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate His resurrection as a sign that He has defeated death, that there is hope beyond the grave for us as we sang this morning. That's why all this matters. And that's why Jesus, as King, deserves our honor, deserves our obedience, even when it might cost us personally, even when it might cost us. In the moment, right? Jesus deserves our obedience and our honor for what He did for us on the cross. And we obey Him trusting that He will work all things for good in the long term because of what He achieved on the cross. So if you're, you're here this morning, sorry, you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus, you don't know why cross matters. You know why Easter matters. Because of your only hope to have your sins forgiven, I invite you and implore you trust Jesus. You can't be good enough on your own. Only because of Jesus you have hope of eternal life. For those of us who are here this morning who have trusted Jesus. If there will be situations in life Maybe not as extreme as pilots, but so we're forced to choose between our own personal interests and doing what brings God honor and glory. And in those moments, we remember all that Jesus did for us on the cross. That what He did for us on the cross, would it motivate us, would it implore us to choose honoring Him over our own self-interest. Let's pray. Father, we once again thank You for by Your plan, by Your foreknowledge sending Jesus Jesus, we praise you for freely and joyfully coming to earth, giving up the glories of heaven to come to this broken, sinful world. And to go to the cross, not because any earthly king forced you to, but out of your own love for us. We never cease to be amazed by that incredible act, Jesus. As we remember all that you've done for us, would it give us the strength and the courage and the motivation to live the lives you call us to live? Would it give us boldness to tell other people about you and invite other people in to the faith even if it may cost us 
we choose obedience and honoring you over our own personal gain, our own personal well-being. We, we go from here living lives that, that honor you, and that glorify you, and that point others to all that you accomplished on the cross and through your resurrection. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go today? Would you go first of all just remembering what Jesus did? We, especially during this season, but always, not take for granted the cross and the resurrection and Jesus freely coming for us. Would you go desiring to bring Him honor more than you desire your own personal comfort? You are dismissed.